All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog in the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services and all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. And by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. Coming up, the carrier air wing mission has changed as aviators turn their attention from wars in the desert to supporting NATO and deterring China. The F-35 Charlie is now fully integrated into the carrier air wing and a growing unmanned aviation presence is right around the corner. YouTube creator and naval aviator Ward Carroll is with us to discuss the latest in naval aviation. But first, a look at this week's naval news. An apparent Ukrainian unmanned surface drone attack appeared to severely damage the Russian Rapusha-class amphibious ship Olenogorsky Gornyak during the night of August 3rd to 4th. Dramatic video posted on social media showed the view from the drone as it maneuvered directly into the amphibious ship's port side and hit it amidships. Images posted on the morning of August 4th showed the ship listing heavily to port, but still afloat. The attack took place just off Novorossiysk, where the Russian naval base was thought to be more secure than that at Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula. The Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy has transferred most of its aircraft, fighters, bombers, radars, air defense, and airfield units to the People's Liberation Army Air Force. Part of a major Chinese military aircraft reorganization, the U.S. Air Force's China Aerospace Institute reported on July 31st. The moves reflect a growing emphasis on multi-domain operations and that most Chinese maritime strike missions are joint in nature. Among the transfers are all of the Navy's mine-laying aircraft to an Air Force that has not performed that mission. The submarine USS North Carolina arrived at the Australian Navy's Fleet Base West in Rockingham, Western Australia, on August 4th. It's the first visit of a Virginia-class submarine to Australia since the September 2021 announcement of the AUKUS partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. Phase one of AUKUS features increased U.S. submarine visits ahead of the establishment in 2027 of Submarine Rotational Force West with up to four Virginia-class subs and a British Astute-class boat operating from Fleet Base West. The U.S. Navy on August 4th appears to have reversed course and now plans to buy amphibious ships LPDs 33, 34, and 35. In a notice posted on SAM.gov, Naval Sea Systems Command said it, quote, intends to issue solicitation from Huntington Ingalls, end quote, for the ships. The notice comes after this year's budget submission, wherein LPDs were zeroed out for what the Navy called a procurement pause and goes back on multiple statements and congressional testimony from service leadership questioning whether the Navy would continue to buy San Antonio-class Flight 2 LPDs, which are only built at HII's Ingalls Shipyard. 
Congress was nearly unanimous in its opposition to the pause. There were two significant developments this past week affecting the U.S. Navy's destroyer force. On August 1st, the Navy announced a new multi-year procurement program covering fiscal years 2023 to 2027 and awarded contracts to both shipyards that build Arleigh Burke-class destroyers. Huntington Ingalls will build six destroyers over the five years, while General Dynamics Bath Iron Works will build three. The MYP features one option for an additional ship anywhere within the multi-year, plus one option each year should an additional ship be requested either by the Navy or Congress. For a total of 15 ships, should all options be exercised. All the new ships will be Flight 3 variants, with the first ship starting with hull number DDG-140. And on August 3rd, the Navy announced the service life extension of four earlier Flight 1 Burke-class destroyers beyond their planned 35-year expiration date. Destroyers Ramage and Benfold have been extended to 40-year service lives, while the Mitcher and Milius get another four years to a total of 39 years. All the ships are fitted for ballistic missile defense with advanced Aegis Base 9 combat systems, and the Navy said all are in good material condition. And in new ship news, a keel ceremony was held August 3rd for the Virginia-class submarine Oklahoma SSN-802. It will only be the second time a ship is born the Sooner State's name, the first being battleship BB-37 that was sunk at Pearl Harbor in 1941. Oklahoma will be completed at Huntington Ingalls Newport News Shipbuilding Yard in Virginia. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, moving to the discussion portion of our podcast, we are joined by a return guest and friend of the pod, Ward Carroll. Ward is a 20-year Navy veteran. He was an F-14 radar intercept officer, and he now runs the Ward Carroll YouTube channel. Uh, Ward brings decades of naval aviation experience, both in uniform and out. Ward, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Great to return to the show, Chris and Chris. Always happy to be here. So Ward, at the end of this month is the big uh, tailhook conference out in Reno, and I know that you will be out there and you'll be taking the YouTube channel out, out there to talk to uh, both folks in uniform and your your fans. And we wanted to have you on the show to kind of do a, a mid-year naval aviation update, if you will. Can you run through maybe the top three or four aviation issues that you've been tracking uh, th- this year and kind of what you're hearing on those issues? So- in in no apparent order, uh, the first things that come to mind are op tempo. So Harry S. Truman got back this year after a 10-monther, um, and uh, there was a gap in coverage uh, between um, Bush getting relieved by Ford. So, you know, we used to complain when we'd have six-month cruises extended to seven, and now 10-month to a year are now the standard, which sort of harkens back to my father-in-law, the late great Hoot Foot, who was an A6 guy. Um, whenever, anytime I would complain about workups or a cruise, he'd go off on how they did 11-month cruises and a one-month turnaround and then a 12-month cruise during the Vietnam era. And so we really did put our crews away, you know, wrote them hard and put them away wet and retention suffered as soon as the draft ended. And so we threatened to do that now uh, for, for a similar reason. We, we threatened to relearn the lessons that we've learned at that time. Now, when I go to places like Tailhook and I have the opportunity to interface directly with 
naval aviators, those out there doing it these days, uh, my spirit is buoyed because these folks are as psyched about the mission as I was. And so I, I, I think that while the cruises are arduous and lengthy, what they're doing is of self-evident consequence. So if you're an East Coast sailor, you go to the Adriatic, the Ionian, and you're flying long-range sorties to kind of patrol, patrol the Western front of the war in Ukraine, if you will, working with your NATO partners, not just uh, as air refuelers, but also in company with AEW assets, with strike assets, and the folks from those air wings who got to do that said they were really incredible, exciting sorties. You know, obviously the long range transits are less than exciting, but once you got on station, um, there were a lot of radar contacts. There was a lot of stuff that you had to pay attention to, uh, a lot of ROE tripwire concerns. So if you're doing that kind of thing, and meanwhile, the, the, the maintenance guys and the folks on the flight deck are working to make every sortie because every sortie mattered in terms of the NATO calculus, you know, meeting the ATO, the air tasking order. So I wasn't hearing anybody saying, or I haven't heard anybody say, um, yeah, we were just drilling holes in the sky or some of the stuff we used to do when we were on Gonzo station, or even when I got extended uh, in 1987, uh, because Terry Waite was taken hostage and John Lehman came out and he was standing on a soapbox, literally on the flight deck and like, we're going to go to war and we're going to extend you guys, but it's for the most important thing. And then we pulled into port into Haifa. We're like, I thought this was a war zone. And, and so we got real cynical real fast. And uh, so I'm not hearing anything like that. Right. So I think the capability of carrier aviation these days, the investment has proved out. Super Hornet is a good platform. Um, our ability to plug into the the joint, you know, uh, matrix is is um, easy, um, not easy, but but it's something that we do well. Um, and so, I think flight hour funding is where it needs to be. I'm not hearing any like Hornet readiness FMC issues like we had a couple of years ago when Bullet Miller was the air boss. He attended to that. So I think in terms of of readiness, uh, and I'm talking carrier aviation, uh, we're good to go. Of course, uh, you see pictures in the trade press of ships pulling back in. You know, Tyler Rogaway likes to do this. He'll, he'll put up the the rusty ship returning from the long deployment. And so I think that's a cosmetic thing, you know, and because we don't have the forward deployed uh you know, uh, depots that we used to have and, and the places like Rhoda and the footprints at SIG and these kinds of things that we used to have where you'd take three weeks off a cruise to paint the ship. We don't do that anymore because everybody's on station operating. Um, so you do see this in the, in the cosmetic look of the ship when they pull back into port. I happened to be in San Diego um, last year when Vincent got back uh, and she did look like beat up uh, after that cruise that they'd done in uh, Westpac. But they're still launching sorties. The ship still goes, you know, top speed and so forth and so on. So I think that's just a cosmetic thing that people may see and think, oh, our Navy's not doing well, but I, I wouldn't get caught up in that, in that optical hype as it were. Um, the, the other concerns are um, I guess I'd call it civilian pressure 
on uh, the, the, the Navy, particularly and the Marine Corps, you know, this current situation with Senator Tuberville and the holds on promotions at the flag level because he doesn't like uh, the stated law, Pentagon press pol- or uh, abortion policy. Um, and uh, so he's using uh, the power of his senatorial position to s- sort of try to enact law single-handedly. And that's causing uh, holdups, you know, CNO, Commandant of the Marine Corps, Superintendent of the Naval Academy. Those are all acting jobs uh, right now. And as we know, um, the trains keep running, but it starts to erode command atmosphere on the margins, and that in time can create um, readiness issues. And so um, this whole woke military pressure and, and all of that, uh, I think, is a, is a distraction as much as they believe it's something to try to get the military back on a war fighting footing. So I'm concerned about where that might trend. Um, I, I think uh, Admiral Franchetti as CNO or Franchetti as as CNO is a is an okay pick, um, you know. And and I think uh, keeping uh, Sam Paparo out in Westpac is is a good move. I mean, he's like uh, you know MacArthur. I mean, he's been out there for 13 years. He's like the viceroy out there, right? And you know, between fleet or, you know, um, the, the three jobs he will have had now, um, all the way to, you know, PAC fleet and then Indo-PACOM. He knows the environment as he demonstrated on 60 Minutes a few months ago. Uh, you know, he was on message and he, he knows what's up. So I think that's a smart slate as far as that goes. Uh, and, and then otherwise, um, you know, again, I, I think uh, the op-tempo demands if the economy continues to grow, like the airlines is a good example, right? So as an aviator, I lived through eras where the airlines were hiring and then the airlines were furloughing. And, and so the Navy's ability to retain uh, qualified and talented aviators is a function of that by and large. And right now the airlines are hiring massively um, and the incentives are like old school. It's not like you have to come aboard and make $24,000 for two or three years and live 10 to a flop house outside of Newark. Now you're making six digits with an eye on making mid six digits in two or three years. And, you know, flying international routes and big airplanes and quickly moving to, for, to captain and all the other things that make that a, a very attractive option. If you're tired of deploying for 10 months and having short turnarounds and going back to sea and having sh- shore duty truncated because they need you back in a squadron, um, and your wife is like, hey, what's up? I, I, I need you around. Never mind that airline piloting is not exactly a stay-at-home job. I think they leave that out of the, uh, um, you know, the uh, application form that you're kind of gone all the time, just not all at one time. But I'm concerned about that. But uh, otherwise, I think, you know, some of what we've seen, F-35C has proved out, you know, ramp strike on Vincent notwithstanding. That was an interesting, um, that, mishap investigation came out this year and uh you know the f-35 is not naval aviator proof is the bottom line you know and and while we're told by everybody up to the peo jsf that the airplane is pilot proof it's not you know and so we discovered the hard way that that plm can be overridden and a pilot can fly into the ramp and so unfortunately to Two folks on the flight deck were hurt, one critically, one severely, 
the pilot lost his wings and won't fly a Navy jet again. Um, and so that was the one little asterisk on what was otherwise a year that proved out the F-35C's you know, operational performance at sea. I think sortie rates were up. Maintainability was, was what they thought it would be. Logistics were fine. Um, the airplane plugs into any arena seamlessly. Anybody who flies it and the, uh, you know, sort of encodes, the warfare commanders love it because each one of it, each one of those airplanes is like an Intel node um, and, and can pass information even beyond uh, tactical information that, that a fighter would care about. So I think that has proved out. Never mind that the airplane is very expensive and 10 years behind schedule. Again, as we've demonstrated in the procurement arena, if you apply enough time, money, and talent to any program, it will succeed. I saw that firsthand with V-22, and we're seeing that now with uh, with Joint Strike Fighter. So let, I, let, me jump, let me jump in for one second, because you, you kind of touched on it uh, on the first um, issue that you talked about, but all the others do kind of plug in. What kind of learning curve has there been or, or has there been a learning curve as the as naval aviation has moved from war on terror to competition, right? I mean, I think we saw really over the last 18 months, the deployments, particularly from the East Coast, have changed dramatically. And, you know, you alluded to what they're doing with NATO. I mean, that's a different mission for like, if you were if you're a department head, that's kind of very different from what you did as a JO, isn't it? Or and, and what are you hearing in terms of that that curve? So I, I mean, that's a good thing to point out, Chris, because I think the post 9-11 wars, uh, the carrier was present, but not essential. You know, we were kind of like me too. And this is proven out by the fact that particularly when Admiral Mullen was CNO, he he liked the IA program. It's like, we got to be part of this war. And so that means we need naval officers to be provisional authorities and, you know, in Paktika province and coast and, and not necessarily on small boys and, uh, you know, patrolling the littorals, the, tai- the Straits of Taiwan, or on aircraft carriers participating in essential presence ops in, uh, you know, in the western side of Ukraine. So I, I think as we pivot away from asymmetric warfare back to peer conflict, this is where the carrier was meant to be. And I think that if I'm a, a you know, an a, a aviator in a squadron, and I'm like, what are we doing? And why does it matter? It's now more self-evident than perhaps it was during, uh, uh, you know, the enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom. So when I was embedded in uh, in Afghanistan and we were in Paktika province, I saw one super Hornet um, and, uh, or maybe it was even a legacy Hornet. Um, so uh, no, it was a super Hornet. It was VF 143, VFA 143. And it did a moto pass, right? A show of force pass. Didn't drop any ordnance, didn't strafe. And that was it, you know? And so it's like, what did that do in the firefight that we were you know, reporting on didn't stop as a function of that Hornet flying over. Um, and that was kind of the nature of what we did. You know, I mean, we we did do over the course of the 20 years, there were some important strike missions and things that, uh, you know, that we did that were essential to either moving out the, the forward line of troops or disrupting an attack or whatever. I'm not saying that it was all a waste, but it just wasn't our core competency. And there were other assets around mostly based at places like Bagram uh, that were there in the event that, uh, you know, the carrier wasn't able to make it. 
So now that's not the case, particularly in the Seventh Fleet AOR, um, where this is very much a Navy ball game. And we're back to we need ships that can steam and stay on station and go blue water. And we need airplanes that can operate at a thousand mile effective range and and tanker support. This is why the organic tanker question is, is back in fashion. And so I think all of this portends well for the compelling argument for a strong U.S. Navy slash Marine Corps. And so I think that's what you get when you pivot from asymmetric to uh, near peer. Chris, I'll throw it to you. Ward, I'd like to spin over a little bit to unmanned. Um, and in particular, this manned, unmanned teaming or MUM-T uh, concept, which is manned aircraft with unmanned aircraft. Uh, it was, I was taken by a story about two or three weeks ago that came out on NAVAIR about the uh, air test and, and evaluation squadrons, 23 and 31, VX 23 and 31, uh, conducting a series of tests uh, using uh, F-18 strike fighters, uh, F-18 Super Hornets, and E-18G Growlers, um, plus plus unmanned. This is a this is a new concept. It's uh, it, I, I think it's interesting that we're using these strike aircraft to do it. Um, what's your what's your take on the on on how that's moving? Is it still more tentative? Is it moving faster? Uh, what do you think? So I think it's moving faster, and I think the the powers that be are totally embracing this technology. Now it's just a, a function of doing it smart, doing it right, doing doing it at once in a you know bleeding edge but linear fashion. So I think this manned unmanned teaming concept is that intermediate step before you get to full autonomy slash AI. I just did an episode um, with a a guy uh, Paco Benitez who is a uh, former strike eagle wizzo who's working on the ai slash unmanned uh industry side of the house now um and he's been on the channel a few times to talk sixth gen fighters and most recently ai as it applies to uh, its utility in tactical aviation so the australia the australians actually uh, are ahead of us with respect to embracing what they call loyal wingmen and so boeing in australia has been uh, working with their Hornet squadrons to do the thing where a Hornet pilot will remotely control upwards of eight unmanned aircraft uh, in a sort of force multiplication kind of way. So that you can imagine that the mission areas where that would be effective are suppression of enemy air defenses, where you know there's a high risk going in, trolling into SAM envelopes or whatever, uh, you don't want to send a, you know, $65, 80000000 million airplane. You'd like to send a $10 million drone. And also you don't want to hazard a, a human being in these cases, but you want it to be effective. So this teaming, what they've shown is, you know, with the right programming, the right, you, I'll call it AI. That's a loose term because it's not like straight stick AI, but the ability to have it make decisions uh, and and do machine learning as it will as you will um, it's proving to be effective and so I think what the U.S. Navy has seen particularly because uh, remember we kind of we had FAXX and then we zeroed out that line and now we're kind of back thinking okay we got to be part of whether you want to call it NJAD NGAD or sixth generation fighter 
Um, and then there, the questions that are being asked are, okay, how many cockpits does it have? Meaning how many guys are in the airplane? And what does it do that really is a generational improvement from what JSF can do particularly, or F-22 or any fifth gen airplanes? And so I think the answer to that, the predicate is what we're talking about here. This manned unmanned teaming, the ability to work with unmanned with drones and do this cost-effective force multiplication that can be a complete game changer, especially as the budgets start to tighten up, um, you know, in the event that we don't go to war with China. Um, and so I think it's, a, I think it's inevitable whether what I think about it, it personally doesn't really matter. It's happening, you know, and I think once, and you, you know how the systems commands work, Chris, and, and, and the, and the other Chris too, uh, you know, once they say, okay, then they're all in. So there's this hesitancy for years and years and it's suddenly like, okay, let's do it. And then all the O6s and all the, you know, the SESs and everybody else, they're all in. And suddenly budgets are shifted talent, you know, the competencies throw flood the zone. So people are taken from POJSF to PAO, whatever the unmanned programs numbers are. And, the test teams, the VXs, as you said, 23 and 31, their test plan gets rejiggered. And now they're doing a lot of unmanned stuff, less what else they would do to keep testing F-35 um, and whatever other missionaries they want the F-35 to do. So I, 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 it's happening, right? And and so now it's just a matter of, are, are we going to do it in a way that's, that's smart as you embrace this technology? Because I still don't know having watched the X-47 land on the boat, how are we going to incorporate, in this case, the MQ-25 with the rest of the air wing? What does the case one TAC note look like? What does case three look like? How does this thing operate? Where are the people? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm just thinking, for me, I saw a, a pamphlet that NavAir put out a few years ago, and it just struck me as this is a brave new world because they showed an overhead view of the carrier, sort of a, you know, a mock-up, but it had F-35 Super Hornets and unmanned airplanes. In this case, it was X-47s. But I just remember thinking, what if you're sitting like in the, you know, on the fantail and this unmanned thing taxied in front of you, and then the director taxied you behind the unmanned thing, it went on the cat, JBD went up, it shot off, and then you go on there, right? Or you trap and you clear the landing area, and as you're getting parked, here comes an unmanned thing that traps and taxis around the flight deck. I, I mean, that's rocking my world, just the idea of that. So I think the devil's in the details. Remember, all we've done so far is trap the X-47 a couple of times. You know, I think it was on, didn't we do that on Bush, right? Um, and that was a few years ago. And now, yes, the MQ-25 is being developed. I know that all the talent, as I said, is being thrown at that program office. Um, and, you know, again, it's kind of interesting in the NAVAIR mafia, and I'm talking about the aviation engineering duty officers, not even talking about the civilian, you know, GS-15s and SESers. I'm talking about the 05s, 06s. They move from, they're like nomads. They move from one important program to the other. So when I was working there, it was V-22. Then I left and, you know, the chief engineer, the chief contract guy, the logistics guy all left once that milestone three decision happened, left V-22 and went to JSF. And now they're like, okay, now we field this program, right? So again, enough time, money, and talent, it's going to succeed. So that's what's happening with 
unmanned, Chris. So that's a long answer for, is it going to happen? And what do I think? It is happening. Ward, let's shift gears real quick before we let you go. Um, as I mentioned at the top, today's episode that dropped was on the two American sailors um, that were caught spying for the Chinese, um, and they were indicted uh, yesterday. Um, your your thoughts on this, and you know what what this may mean for the Navy as somebody that's been around the Navy. Just you know, in the in the couple minutes that we have left, uh, wh- where do we go from here? So I'm going to sound like an old guy, but I think. Kids these days have competing loyalties. We saw this with the National Guardsman who was up Discord and gave, you know, a whole bunch of photocopies or pictures of super secret information that he had access to, to his buddies on Discord, because that was kind of his community. That was his posse. And he wanted to impress them, you know, and to him, that seemed like the hierarchy of loyalties was sound to him. So I think what we're seeing here is the idea of, of betraying your country, the bar is lowered either because of money or uh, in this case, competing loyalties of national origin, perhaps. And again, I'm, I'm, I have no proof to say that was their motivation, except they are of Asian American descent, both of these sailors who've been indicted. Um, and so we'll see how that plays out as this thing goes, as both of these go to, go to trial. But, you know, Spying for another country is not new. On my watch, it was the Walkers, right? In fact, as a Tomcat guy, um, our airplane was compromised greatly, uh, particularly by the son who was stationed on Nimitz uh, and and gave over all of the uh, the AIM-7 information. That that missile was compromised in terms of its ability to perform against Russian jamming, Soviet jamming, for years after that, thanks to those guys. So I've felt it directly. Um, and it, so I'm not going to say that it, this hasn't happened before, you know, um, money is a big draw, but I just worry that, uh, you know, because of social media and everybody has access to everything and this global whatever's, uh, that this notion of as a service member, you have one thing that you're loyal to over everything else, um, you know, the hierarchy of loyalties, um, I think that's eroding perhaps a little bit. And I don't think the national discourse is helping that at all. Um, you know, and so it's somehow to to declare yourself as a uh, a loyal service member is to say that you're a member of one party over another. Um, that's not productive. Uh, so I think this is evidence of of that. But it's just the data set is too big, right? Two guys um, with hundreds of thousands of sailors. So I, I don't want to, paint with too broad a brush there. Um, but I think this is like, this can, this can happen these days. The other thing that was part of that episode is uh, the, the Chinese hackers that Microsoft discovered. Oh, by the way, you know, in its capacity as defense contractor, it was like, Hey, you guys uh, just here's a heads up. All the computers at Guam were hacked. Um, and this guy who's uh you know, show name is Volt Typhoon. They all have these cool, you know, these hackers have these cool names. So Volt Typhoon uh, is the hacker behind this military hack where basically he could turn off computer networks, communication, uh, you know, sources and like water and sewage on military facilities, both domestically and overseas. So you can imagine if the bubble goes up, um, then if that's the first move is to just disrupt us like that, that's going to be, that's going to hamstring us even more than 
a hypersonic missile might. You know, so these things, these developments are of great concern. And so we'll be keeping our eyes on them. Well, I'm sorry, folks. That's all we've got time for. That is just a ton of stuff, uh, Ward. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, certainly, we could talk about all these issues in depth, but we've got to go right now. Folks, our, our guest has been Ward Carroll. He is the creator and uh, producer of the Ward Carroll uh, channel on YouTube. Uh, Mr. Na uh, a Naval Aviator, Mr. Naval Aviation. And Ward, it's always good to have you on. Well, Chris and Chris, it's always great to see you guys. Hopefully our paths cross in person very soon. Thanks, Ward. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cavus talks about the importance of unmanned technology in today's war fighting. Hours before we recorded this podcast came news of yet another Ukrainian surface drone attack on a Russian warship. This time, it was a Rapusha-class amphibious ship off the coast of the naval base at Novorossiysk on the Russian mainland. Video apparently from the drone shows it approaching at night. The Russian ship's lights are on, but there's no sign of any defensive gunfire before the video breaks up. Images on social media after the sun came up show the ship listing heavily to port. While it didn't sink, at least right away, it clearly is out of action for quite a while. Russia's war on Ukraine has provided an unparalleled crucible to field myriad unmanned systems, many on land and underwater, but the vast majority in the air and on the water's surface. Both sides are employing huge numbers of drones of all sizes and missions obtained from a multitude of sources. Ukraine is fielding unmanned systems from NATO countries, including the United States, as well as systems developed by the Ukrainians themselves. Russia is buying systems anywhere they can, most famously from Iran, and will likely soon employ new surveillance and attack systems from North Korea. The unmanned systems are most definitely shaping this conflict, from the front lines to the Black Sea to deep inside each country. Understandably, there's great interest within multiple international defense establishments in the lessons being learned virtually every day in how these systems are employed. What works? What doesn't? What command and control systems work? What deception plans work? and how they can be varied, what defensive and counter unmanned systems work, and on and on. It's also quite likely that systems are being employed by supporters of each side to test them out in the real world laboratory of combat. The only thing that is crystal clear at this point is that unmanned systems, large and small, on land, in the air, and on and under the sea, are here to stay. There's no reason for the Pentagon or the US Navy to pussyfoot around this. Innovators within industry and the military are chomping at the bit to get going on multiple concepts and speed up others. Within the Navy, there's an awful lot already going on, but many programs are being slow rolled for a variety of reasons. When incoming Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Lisa Franchetti is finally sworn in, one of her top priorities should be to step on the gas when it comes to unmanned, and Congress needs to back her. It's not the future. It is the here and now. The race already is on. Yes, it is. Well, one more thing before we go. A happy birthday to the U.S. Coast Guard. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishops Podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more 
at geaerospace.com slash marine and by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cabis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cabas. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.